Welcome back. This is Matthew. I'm here with Jack in the studio. And today we have a very special guest over Zoom. He was a co-founder of Vox with Ezra Klein and Melissa Bell. He's the author of a Substack newsletter, Slow Boring. He's a Harvard grad and a fellow Matthew, Matthew Iglesias. Matt, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Hi, good to be here. So Matt, you, you, you cover just about everything under the sun as a journalist. So in this interview, we're going to try to reflect that breadth of coverage. Uh, we want to talk to you about political messaging. We want to talk to you about polarization. We want to talk about crime. And of course, we want to talk about higher ed a little bit, being at Harvard and you being a Harvard grad. But before we get into those media sure. discussions, we just wanted to ask some more personal questions about your trajectory in journalism. Um, try to give us and our viewers a sense of where your mind is at right now. So for that, I'm going to I'm going to kick it off to Jack to take it away. Yeah, Matt. So Absolutely. it feels like from our perspective, sitting here at Harvard, um, being, you know, 20, 21, that there's a sense among young people, people our age, that we're in kind of an unprecedented time of danger in the U.S. for our mm -hmm. democracy, for U.S. society, maybe climate, a lot of people feel. Um, kind of bracketing for a moment, whether or not that's a totally valid sense for us to have, which we mm -hmm. maybe we'll get to later, the gap between the perceptions of how things are going and then how they're actually going. We were wondering if you could think back to when you were basically in our shoes, you know, <clears throat> 21, mm -hmm. trudging through the snow to get to Wadner Library. Um, do you think that back then there was a, at all a similar sense from your perspective of this impending doom? Or is this kind of existential dread? Is this really a facet of like this time, this generation? You know, there was a big change over the course of my four years in college. I was class of 2003. So I came to campus the fall of 1999. Um, I was interested in politics. Um, you know, I sort of always was. But that was incredibly eccentric uh, in 1999. Nobody cared about the Bush-Gore election that, you know, was starting to play out. I mean, I... Um, you know, took a bus. Uh, the the the. I guess I started in '99. You know, graduated, then came back. It was the fall. New Hampshire was a swing state back then. Um, the college Democrats, you know, took some people on a bus up to New Hampshire to to knock on doors, and there was barely anybody on that bus. You know, it, it just wasn't at all a kind of a mainstream thing. Then came the election itself. You know, people people sort of watch an election, uh, you know, just like you could watch the Super Bowl without being a big football fan. Um, and it, you know, it had a surprising result. And I was taken aback and I, I, I was shocked by the events of the 2000 election, uh, to be honest. And, and I remember going to a small protest downtown to like count all the votes. And, you know, it was cold because it's Boston. Um, but like almost nobody showed up. Right. And then it was after that came 9-11. And that was a really big deal, right? I mean, people had lots of different feelings about that and about all the subsequent events. But it was really, I think, September 11th that kicked into gear a sense that the events in the world were something that a normal person should care about, should have feelings about. Terrorism was scary. Uh, the prospect of war was scary. The prospect of, you know, 
racial or religious profiling was scary for the people who it was impacted. There were people who a small number of, of hate crimes in the aftermath of that, but it was that was very alarming to people. There was a time when somebody um, had spilled a bunch of laundry detergent powder in the uh, you know laundry room in Kirkland basement, and people thought it was anthrax, and the whole dorm had to be evacuated, and the guys in the biohazard suits came. So to me, you know, that sense of sort of psychological, political, social crisis has been kind of rolling with us for over 20 years now, but but not for my entire life. I mean, I think it was like one damn thing after another. After 9-11, the economy really fell apart in 2007, 2008. There was Trump, um, growing concerns about climate change this whole kind of time. But it was a real transformation. Yeah, I mean, we thought, I guess we had a bad freshman when it came to biological danger with COVID testing, but ne never would have imagined anthrax <laughs> in Brooklyn Bay. I mean, that's... that's I, mean, it was, I mean, it was funny because, I mean, obviously there was no anthrax, right? I mean, COVID was real. I, I don't want to say terrorism wasn't real because um, there were terrorist attacks, but terrorism anxiety was like false alarm after false alarm after false alarm. COVID, I mean, you know... I. I feel really bad for people your age who sort of had elements of your uh, college or high school experience ruined by something that was probably not a significant risk to you, but but like a lot of people were getting sick. You know, it was like it was like a real thing. It's it's hard to capture the kind of post nine eleven anxiety because of course we know now like there was no follow up domestic terrorist attack, but people thought, and the other thing also was, it was like an ego thing, right? Like Harvard's really famous. Uh, it's a really, it's like a big deal. So I think people, I don't want to say people wanted to be targeted by terrorists, but it's like, you want to think, oh, this is like an iconic American institution. We could be at risk. Yeah, no, we, we'd like to think that maybe Kirkland Basement would be a, a major sensitive target, but maybe, maybe that's, <laughs> that's an ego thing. It's all there, you know, the grill and foosball tables. It's yeah, there's a grill. You just, just harden those targets. Yeah. Um, well, Matt, now that you're kind of fully inhabited in that, you know, 2001, mm -hmm. 2002, Matt Iglesias um, mentality, I'm wondering also about opinions that either then, maybe less far back that you had in the past that might have changed fast forwarding back to the present. Um, one or two opinions that if they come to mind, you used to have, maybe they were central, maybe not, um, but opinions that you no longer hold today. Yeah, I mean, you know, I definitely can't remember everything that I thought 20 plus years ago. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I was a big foreign policy hawk in the wake of 9-11. Um, and, you know, again, I mean, I think people younger than me, um, you know, it's good, good for them. Um, but you know, there was a lot of hysteria around in the country. There were a lot of arguments around happening, arguments happening on campus, arguments happening in society. You know, and I remember telling people like, you know, it, it's not just George W. Bush who's like for this this war in Iraq, right? I mean, this, you look at Tony Blair, you look at Bill and Hillary Clinton, you look at Joe Biden, chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee. Um, you look at John Kerry, you know, our, our senator here in Massachusetts, like this is what all sort of mainstream right thinking people think. Um, it's what I thought uh, there were, you know, there was a 
professor or, you know, some affiliate on, on campus who was in Iraqi exile and he spoke, you know, very passionately, I think, to a lot of students about, you know, the liberation of his country and things like that. And there was a lot of idealism and enthusiasm uh, about that kind of stuff that, you know, not everybody bought into, but most people did at the time. And, you know, I will admit that I was one of them. Uh, you know, the other thing that was a really, I, I did not change my mind on, it was minds changed in the other direction, um, but is that, you know, same-sex marriage equality was a hot topic of discussion in the kind of early to mid-aughts, but was a very non-mainstream position there. But a lot of younger progressives were really like, like, this is super important. Um, you know, and I remember arguing with with older people, you know, who who were left of center, you know, Al Gore, John Kerry voters who were like, this could never happen in a million years. Um, and, you know, me, most people, I think my age were like, no, this is great. This is what we got to do. But it was a very, it, that was like an edgy take back then, whereas now it's a completely mainstream one. Um, Iraq was a completely mainstream one. Uh, but now, you know, it's like nobody will admit um, to having supported that. Uh, and th those are kind of the big changes. Then, you know, kind of mainstream of politics. I've just always been somebody who, you know, thought we should have higher taxes and a more expansive welfare state. Um, lots of micro opinions about, you know, how should you do that? How exactly should it work? I'm always learning. I'm always changing my mind about sort of the, the details of that. But that's just kind of always been, you know, my thing. Right. And, and so these views are expressed usually on nowadays on Substack. That's kind of your your platform. So I want to mm -hmm. spend just a couple minutes asking about Substack. Um, for those who don't know, uh, who are listening, Substack is basically an online platform that allows writers to send digital newsletters um, to their subscribers. So, you know, you get your inbox slow, boring post um, every every morning. I'm a very happy Substack reader. So is Jack. Um, we really I'm like slow, boring. Yeah. I sometimes wonder, though, whether the model of the individual blogger is good for the way we mm -hmm. consume news. I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this. In, in particular, I think it seems to me that the shift from traditional news sources toward, you know, Substack, individual blogging, maybe we could throw Twitter as part of that trend. Uh, you mean is, X, Matt? X, sorry, yeah. X. Still just, getting used just, to that. Just to be clear. Yeah. It's part of a trend where consumers kind of... Uh, care a lot about what particular people think, right? You wake up in the morning, you want to know what's in the Matt Iglesias worldview or on, on in the YouTube political, mm -hmm. world, you want to know what like Ben Shapiro on the right or maybe David Pakman on the left thinks about XYZ issue. And you let that inform your own. Mm -hmm. do, do you think that's potentially somewhat dangerous or maybe more likely to produce the kind of you know, ideological echo chambers, the kind of motivated reasoning or, or seeking out opinions that confirm your own rather than thinking them through? Is that different from traditional sources of media or am I making too much of that distinction? Um, you know, I, I don't think, I guess I would put it a little bit different, which is that with the internet, you have much more competition in the media space, right? Um, it, it's just, it's really easy to access lots and lots of different things. It's really easy to have distribution of lots and lots of different things. And, you know, normally we say, you know, you take an economics class, you think about, you know, capitalism, right? And it's like, well, competition is good, right? It's everybody can get what they want. Um, you can get, you know, a t-shirt that like you find comfortable, that fits you, matches your style. It can be a little bit different from the next guys. And that's good. That's what we want. It, it's not 
always clear to me that everybody getting what they want makes for in media makes for a kind of healthy epistemological environment right there was something to be said for the idea of when i was before i was a student you know when when the internet was all dial up and it was really shitty and annoying it was like if you wanted to know who had won the west coast baseball games and you wanted to know what time movies were playing in your neighborhood you had to get a newspaper and then the newspaper told you what the newspaper people thought was important and if they were wrong you know or bad that could be very bad there was something you know totalitarian about it but their job was to cultivate a sort of high-minded brand image right that advertisers would say i want to align myself with the cleveland plain dealer with the boston globe with the new york times whatever it is and so you would try to do editorial work that seemed high-minded and prestigious because that was the sort of the marketing function right you were buying the paper for this kind of commodity information that it had because you couldn't get it on the internet and then their editorial mission was to seem high-minded and prestigious so that major brands would want to advertise with them and there were some bad incentives in that but i think a lot of good incentives you know it encouraged sort of sober-minded coverage it encouraged trying to be welcoming to as many readers as possible it encouraged trying to do labor-intensive investigations that you would win prizes for. Uh, on the internet, you're just trying to find some people who like want to click on some shit, right? And so in particular, like if everybody is saying COVID vaccines are safe, and the reason they're saying that is because it's true that COVID vaccines are safe, but 10% of people just like don't want to hear that, well, then the dominant market play is to cater to the 10% because you've got 10% of the audience all to yourself. And there's a million people dividing up the 90% of the audience, right? And then the other people, they start to see, well, okay, maybe I don't need to go like as far as like Dr. Crank and his Substack, but he's like kicking our asses. So maybe we should, you know, debate it. We should say, well, are the pro-vaccine people being too snobby? You know, have we underplayed this one guy who had a heart attack, right? Because it's it, that's the market at work. And it is dragging the media to the average distribution of views that's already present in the population, or is even amplifying the sort of most wrong idea out there. Because like the easiest way to get a competitive advantage is to make something up. Yeah, Matt, I think you, you might've had one local paper that flew right over my head, that the Cleveland Plain Dealer, is, is that still around? Is yes. that, that like- uh, uh, Yes, they're, they're, they're still rocking uh, <laughs> on the shores of the Great Lakes, um, but you know, in a greatly diminished state, you know, as all these, these places are. We've never heard of newspapers anyway. So. Yeah, no, never, never personally, physically opened a <laughs> newspaper. I uh, didn't really know what you're talking about. Uh, uh, Dr. Crank is more our style, Substack. Um, exactly. Yeah, we, we want to pivot. Let's talk a little bit about um, politics. And we want to talk a little bit about your views on on messaging. So you wrote a, a blog post a couple days ago about Biden-Harris messaging, um, about kind of trying harder to win. Uh, by catering their message, it seemed a little bit more to the average American voter who really exists and cast ballots rather than, say, the average progressive activist. Um, 
as you're writing this post and as it's going to, to publish, impending government shutdown. We have our first Biden impeachment hearing yesterday. I'm, I'm hoping you got to see some highlights. It was just yeah circus. And the Trump business empire is in major jeopardy. And in addition to all of Trump's personal legal jeopardy, if I were a Biden media strategist, which I'm not and you know would never hired to be, I would be foaming at the mouth. There seems to be so many things that you could go on the attack right now if you wanted to. But if I'm kind of following mm -hmm. Biden-Harris argument correctly, it seemed that you were kind of arguing that Joe Biden shouldn't really be messaging hard on any of these short-term things. He should be pivoting to campaign mode, putting out ads about meaningful legislation that actually hits Americans' pocketbooks. Is that kind of an accurate read? Well, no, I mean, you know, I'm, I'm all for like attacking the other guys on their weak spots, right? Uh, you know, so there was a, this is a piece of jargon that I think doesn't exist in America. But um, Anthony Albanese, who's the, uh, the prime minister of Australia, um, he said when they were having their own version of this argument before their election, that he wanted to run what he called a narrow target campaign, right? Which was to say he was gonna pick like one to two policy issues that he thought the conservatives were weak on. And then he was going to pick some number of like scandals and like these guys are creeps and maniacs. And he was going to hammer them on that. But on everything else, the job was to minimize his vulnerability, right? To present the smallest possible target attack and zip right at it, right? And I think Biden, you know, if you look at what he did say over the course of this week, Right. The message has been this shutdown is bad. These MAGA extremists want to like destroy everything. Um, he did this speech. It was very good. You know, he, he used the occasion of dedicating memorial to John McCain to talk about democracy and like how Donald Trump is bad. Right. I think that's great. Right. If you could inhabit purely that universe of kind of Biden's creation, you know, you're in really good shape. The problem is, if you listen to how Republicans are hitting back at Biden, some of it is like, it's Hunter, whatever, you know, you got to fight that out. They're kind of bullshitting around. But they're also saying like, oh, like Joe Biden just shut down um, all this oil drilling in the Alaska wilderness. And like, that's true. That is a true thing that he did. And it reflects his view that preserving this wilderness in Alaska is more important than economic development in that region, which isn't what any of Alaska's elected officials think. Um, and that it's more important than, you know, sort of marginal impacts on gasoline prices and energy and inflation, which I think isn't really what the public thinks. So, you know, the, my sort of essence of my advice to him is like, chill. You know, it's like you already did this giant climate change bill. Like that happened. You're going to message it. You're going to talk about what's good in it. But when you look about how Biden talks about the Inflation Reduction Act, he talks about the prescription drug aspects of it. He talks about job creation. He because he knows. I mean, I, you know, he has access to just as good pollsters as me. Um, often the same ones, often better ones. And they tell him like people are not that interested in making personal sacrifices for climate change. Uh, so that's great. That's like the smart way to do it. Uh, but you need to bring some of your policies into alignment with it. And then some of this is just about words. You know, I mean, one of the things I mentioned there is he created this new task force on gun violence, um, which to me 
gun violence has become the like acceptable in progressive circles way of talking about what normal people call crime, right? I think the concern, if you go to like a meeting of progressive nonprofits and you're like, man, I'm really worried about crime. People can say, oh, that's, you're maybe racist there. But if I say like, oh, I'm really concerned about the rising tide of gun violence in our cities, they'd be like, oh yeah, me too, right? But like the goal of an election campaign is, is to talk like somebody, somebody normal. You know, um, if I ask, you know, people at the church down the street from me, if I ask uh, other dads at pickup at my elementary school, if I ask, like, frankly, people who work in Democratic Party politics professionally, but they're on their off time and they're just having dinner talking about what's going on, like, they worry about crime. They don't worry about gun violence. And, you know, just like say that, talk like a normal person. Yeah, you're right. Well, I'm going to talk about crime in a little bit. Um, but you're right that I also made it <laughs> credit to Biden's attacking. I mean, whoever hired Ian Sams and put him in charge of his Twitter page, I mean, is is giving us a, lo- a lot of content right now, for sure. Uh, sure. The- yeah, they're, they're spicing it up. Yeah. On on the subject of messaging and, and things that the Biden administration might want people to be thinking about that they're not, um, let's talk a little bit about economic messaging. This is kind of the, the big yeah. question right now is like, why are Democrats struggling to claim credit for economic gains? And as I understand it, mm-hmm. like, most indicators are painting a pretty positive picture right now of the economy. Unemployment is fairly low. Um, real wages are rising. People are spending as though they're happy and relatively confident. And yet polls show that Americans are unhappy about Biden's economy, that they think you know, bi- so-called Bidenomics is a failure. Uh, what explains that? What explains why uh, the government has not been able to, or Democrats haven't been able to capitalize politically on those very real economic gains? Well, so, you know, I think on a technical level, a big part of what happened is that a lot of people received money from the government during COVID. And then a lot of us, like me, I only received a little bit of money from the government during COVID, but I just kept getting paid. Like I I did not lose my job, but I and most people dramatically scaled back our spending during COVID. You know, like I, my family, we didn't go on vacation. We didn't go out to dinner. I didn't go to the movies. I didn't go to any Wizards games, you know? And so most of us, it was a difficult time in the country And a lot of the coverage, you know, emphasized the difficulty and the difficulties were very real. But in a balance sheet sense, most households were just kind of piling up cash in our bank accounts for about a year and a half or almost two years. Then what happened was, is people started spending the money that they had, right? It was like, you know, and some of it was really simple. We had essentially two years worth of weddings in a single year. Right. So that meant like people spending on parties, people spending on travel, people spending on dresses, you know, all kinds of stuff like that. Everybody wanted to go on vacation and they were saying to themselves, you know what, I'm going to be less price sensitive about this uh, than I normally am because I've got extra money. What happens when everybody tries to spend down their savings simultaneously, though, is that prices go up. And when you've been saying in my head, I'm going to have the most awesome vacation ever because it's three vacations worth of vacations, you actually wind up with an average vacation at double the price, but also the line for everything is long. 
So we had this big period of inflation, but not just inflation, but specifically of people were spending more money than they were earning, right? And everybody felt really grumpy about that because nobody wants to say, oh, I was really happy when I got my $1,200 check. And now what's happening is just the consequences of that check. It's like, you're happy when you're happy and then you forget about it. And then you show up and you're like, holy shit, milk costs what? You know, and, and, and you don't sort of draw the connection. And that became a problem. And there's an incredible amount of grumpiness about that. Um, Jared Bernstein, who's um, one of Biden's top economic advisors, he was talking yesterday um, at Economic Policy Institute. And he said, look, inflation is down now, which means the rate at which prices are increasing has come down. But people remember what the old lower prices were, and they're still mad about it. And they wouldn't like it if we created a recession to bring the prices back down. But I get that, like, they just, they remember what prices used to cost. And he said wages are growing now. And his hope is that over time, as wages start exceeding prices, like, people will feel happier about it. And that seemed like a reasonable take to me, honestly. Um, Some of the communication staff uh, in the administration is, like, hair on fire all the time. But Jared's a smart guy. He's a good economist. He's been doing this for a long time. And he was saying, look, you know, unemployment is low, which is good. Wages are growing now, which is good. Prices are still rising, but they're rising at a lower pace, which is good. And that he thinks that they need to just sort of keep emphasizing the positive while acknowledging that inflation was a hardship on people. And that as long as the real numbers improve, you know, their sort of economy ratings will go up. Right. And I guess maybe Biden joining the picket line of of auto workers striking can can maybe be seen as a I don't want to say last ditch but an effort to improve messaging in a way that can't happen I guess just from the raw indicators of things not being that bad maybe that's how we should be reading that kind of situation I mean that's definitely part of it you know also I think Biden wants to uh you know discuss the contrast uh with with Trump and with with Republicans, right? I mean, this, who knows exactly what's going to happen with the government shutdown, but I think most people, uh, most Democrats and most Republicans think that this will reflect well on Biden because it's going to let him talk about, you know, what are the alternatives? What are the choices here? Um, You know, what's interesting, I I was just looking up the numbers from exactly four years ago. uh, And back then, public sentiment about the economy was much, much better than it is right now. Uh, But Trump's approval rating was terrible anyway. Um, And so we had this whole kind of opposite discourse, which was like, everybody thinks the economy is amazing. So how come they're not crediting the politicians who are in charge? Uh, Whereas now it's, it's in some ways the opposite, but like, it's in some ways the same. Like, I, I think American public opinion is pretty grumpy and pretty polarized and both political parties are pursuing policy agendas that uh, people are not that enthusiastic about. And so, you know, how that interplays with perceptions of the economy is I think a little harder to ascertain than to just ask like, how is the economy actually doing? Uh, And I feel like it's doing pretty well. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting contrast to four years ago, because I think maybe you've written about this, you know, before COVID hit, like, it seemed like going into that election, 
Democrats and Republicans were each going to maybe try to take some credit for the good economy. You know, was it questions like, what is it the Trump economy or right. is this the Obama hangover? Whereas like going to 2024, right. Republicans don't don't really want to take credit for any part of this situation. Um, even though Trump started the uh, initial COVID response, you know, first stimulus checks, Heroes Act, you know, that was still end of Trump. Um, but this is really seems like it's shaping up to be a, a Biden economy. And he's just going to own that. Yeah, I mean, it, it, and, it, and it's interesting because, I mean, American Rescue Plan was a big deal. It was a lot of money. But the, the majority of COVID stimulus money was Trump stuff. Um, and... Yeah, you know, I mean, there was an interesting moment at the Republican debate when uh, Nikki Haley and Ron DeSantis were both like, well, the deficit went up a lot under Trump, and that was bad. And if I had been moderating, I would have tried to be like, are, like, are you guys saying the CARES Act was a mistake? And like Tim Scott, who was in the Senate, like, do you agree with that? Like, is that a thing that conservatives think? Or are they saying... 75% of the stimulus spending was good. And it's just that extra 25% that was bad. You know, I mean, it's, it's, it's interesting to me as a journalist to try to understand what it is people actually think about this stuff. Uh, because the political rhetoric just always, you know, I mean, it oversimplifies. That's sort of your job as a politician. But ideally, part of our job in journalism is to try to draw out some of the, the nuance and understand what's really going on. Right. So m moral of the story is you should try to be a Fox uh, debate moderator. Yeah, I think Matthew year, Iglesias on the <laughs> Fox News Univision, uh, that would be a pivot definitely on the program strategy. That's a dream. Um, if I work on my Spanish, maybe I can I can get the Univision role. Right, right. <laughs> yeah. All right. Let's let's move to polarization. So uh, we want to ask about what your, your general thoughts are on on the trend of polarization in the country. So t typically when people refer to polarization, they're kind of vaguely referring to the widening of our political divide, but we can get a lot more, you know, and the idea that like people are getting angrier at each other about political issues. Um, but we can get more granular than that. A lot of people talk about racial polarization, for example, the phenomenon that the political divide can be explained in racial or ethnic terms. There's a lot of talk and you've written a lot about education polarization, right? So this idea that mm -hmm. Democrats are increasingly the party of the college educated, um, you know, some political scientists use the term calcification to refer to the the hardening of our political identities. So maybe it's not that the uh, our disagreements are becoming wider. It's not that our positions are further and further apart, but rather we're just more fixed in our respective political identities. I I'm curious what you think is the most you know, accurate, but also worrying trend in polarization, if any, it, or or maybe it's just the case that the worrying trend is the big sort where a bunch of different identities are coalescing into Democrat and a bunch of separate identities are coalescing into Republican. But is there one trend that sticks out to you as the one that's increasing over time and the one that you would be most concerned about as an American? You know, I mean, a, a lot of these things are sort of increasing in tandem. Um, I, I think that the issue, though, that is putting the most pressure on American society is the tendency for all of the educated people to sort of migrate into one political party, um, leaving the other one. Uh, it, 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 
I think it's a little bit underrated, the level of dysfunction that this induces, because the way politics works is that the political parties alternate in power. Um, and in a federal system, you know, they share power as well as just sort of straight up alternating. There's just always going to be Republican governors. There's always going to be Republican state legislatures. There's going to be Republicans um, in the White House, you know, roughly half the time. And they need technically competent advice, which they are struggling to get. If you look at conservative policy development over the past 20 years, um, it has gotten much worse. Not in the sense that like, I think the ideas have become like more wrong. They've gotten sloppier. You know, you have people running major institutions um, who are struggling to hire people, you know, you guys' age or, or slightly older um, to do kind of, you know, basic stuff. And then the flip side is you have professional organizations, you know, that are all run by liberals and that are having a hard time sort of distinguishing what is our statement as experts? Like, what are we saying science tells you or medicine from just like, what are our political views? Or even, you know, people people want to fit in, right? I mean, everybody does. Um, right. And, and, and so but th there are some pockets of the left who are who kind of argue that this education polarization should be embraced. Like, it's a good thing that Democrats are the party of the college educated, I guess, for a variety of reasons, including it gives you better control over academia, you know, higher educated people are more likely to vote, more likely to donate. But I don't think you don't make much of that argument. Is that a is that a correct read? Like you're more concerned about the corrosive effects of polarization than the advantages that it gives to your side of the political aisle. Um, you know, I mean, I, I think that it's just a question of, um, you know, I, I, I think there's a kind of quest for political advantage, right? But I think that the political parties, you know, can can shift and, and move to things like that. But like society needs to work on an ongoing sort of like day-to-day -day basis right like people like go to universities people need to ask you know virologists like what's up with covid um, people need to have ideas about like what vaccines should we take and which shouldn't we take or how do we make economic policy what are crime trends you know how do we get our news and with the perception, you know, on the right that all of these institutions are just like totally uncredible, um, it, it kind of like hurts both ways, you know, like we, we see kind of educated elites in some ways like wielding less influence than I think they ought to be over society. People with knowledge and expertise are not have being listened to uh, in the right kinds of ways. Uh, but then on the flip side, you have these institutions, the, the, the credibility has been undermined to an extent for real reasons. You know, I, I think a real sort of signature moment was in 2020, there were, you know, all these, uh, you know, restrictions in place on what people could do. George Floyd was murdered. There were all these protests coming out. There was a question like, is this okay? Like what's going on? And a huge number of people from the public health community came together with a letter and they were like, systemic racism, is an existential threat to public health like you should go out and protest and i see where they're coming from like i mean i but i see where they're coming from like too clearly you know because like they're coming from a place of somebody like me they're not coming from how is this going to look 
to somebody who has been told they can't go to church, right? Because of the public health emergency. But now you can go to the racial justice protest, right? Like it doesn't, it doesn't like click, it doesn't connect for people, but that's because the public health experts are talking to themselves. They're in their own community, which is full of liberals. Whereas if when you come up with something, you have to run it by some Republicans before you put it out there, you would come up with more measured and ultimately, I think, more effective kinds of statements about things. I, I consume a lot of, you know, sort of policy relevant academic research, right? And, you know, it's good. It's interesting. Like professors at good schools, like do good work. It's like not true that they're doing like leftist brainwashing, but you do sometimes see research that comes out and you think like, I wish they had run this by some conservatives who could have suggested alternative interpretations of what's going on, right? Kick the tires on it a little bit more. Um, when I was in school, you know, I, I learned a lot from, I would say I learned more from the right of center professors whose classes I took, not because like they're smarter or they're better teachers, but because their perspective is more distinct from the typical one that I would get. So, you know, I mean, the, the marginal value of listening to conservative scholars is quite high because they're so scarce, right? But they're becoming scarcer and scarcer. Yeah. And I mean, I think, at least at Harvard, I think it kind of differs by department. I don't know if I would describe like the economics department here, for example, as like overwhelmingly to the left. I think yeah. there's a bit Even though the, the flagship intro class, EC10, which might have been taught by Greg Mankiw in your time here, is now taught by Jason two Carmen. Obama era. Or, well, one Obama era and then David Libsyn. Yeah, um, so. but 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 what 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 is your take on on what's happening here? Like, are are colleges making students more liberal, or are young liberal folks self selecting into college? Is it just that younger people are liberal and young people go to college? I know the literature here is very yeah. complicated and tough to to tease out, but yeah, not, I mean, I don't know. They there's, there's a lot of this stuff kind of, I mean, I think that just one of the biggest things, though, is that political debate has started to load more on kind of cosmopolitanism as an idea, right? So, you know, Trump will say, America first. And then all these people I know will be like, oh, that sounds a little off. And this was like, that was literally the slogan of like the anti-anti-Nazi movement in the 1930s. Like, what are you doing? This is like a crazy dog whistle. Like to me, you know, as a Jewish person, the moment I heard Donald Trump say America first, like my mind goes to this guy hates Jews, right? Because that is a really clear association in my mind. The term America first, Charles Lindbergh, historical anti-Semitism. And I'm like, F this guy, you know, whatever. That being said, there's a lot of people, you know, like my neighbor was a retired electrician, African-American guy, doesn't like follow politics super closely or like read books about politics in the 1930s. And he's like, yeah, I'm an American. I think it's a good idea to have our politicians put America first. And I'm like, but listen, you know, and then you have stuff. I mean, again, you know, climate has become such a point of emphasis for the Democratic Party, for the Biden administration. A lot of the reason why climate change is a big deal is because of its impacts on the developing 
world, right? And just a question you have is how much should our regulatory policy care about the impacts of American economic activity on people abroad? Same thing, you know, immigration, right? But Republicans have been saying, you know, oh, it's open borders. Biden just wants to let everybody come. Like none of that is true. What is true is that Biden is trying to balance concerns about border security with the legal right to asylum, which has existed in international law for generations, but has become a much bigger deal. And Republicans are basically saying, like, don't balance those considerations. Like, just don't care about people's legal right to claim asylum. And most liberals, like, that sounds like a bad idea. Like, you should care about foreigners and you should care about their right to make asylum claims. Um, and that division about how much do you care about foreigners, how into nationalism and parochialism are you, just correlates very strongly with educational attainment. I think not because people go to school and they like teach you and it's like, here in college, I'll tell you that Guatemalans are humans too. Uh, but it's because people who are, uh, the, I think technical, psychology uh, quality is called openness to experience, right? It's, it's one of the big five personality traits. And so people who rate highly in openness to experience um, tend to be interested in ideas. So they do better at school. They're interested in sort of quote unquote difficult art, which you know also tends to make you better in school. Um, they are interested in travel and ethnic food and foreign cultures. And so it makes you more sympathetic to immigrants, et cetera, et cetera. And then people on the other side of the spectrum are more comfortable in familiar spaces. Um, they don't like novelty. Um, you know, and it's like it's a profound personality division that does not have that much to do with like tax rates, um, you know, or how should social security benefits be set, but has a lot to do with these kind of newer post-material political issues. Yeah, I mean, it seems like you're kind of mapping out like a evolve, like a more complex, like moral foundations take about Democrats versus Republicans that now maps onto this kind of like cosmopolitanism, like on the right, maybe you call it like globalist mm -hmm. versus like non-globalist. Um, and it's yeah, it's, it's it's not simple to distill, but I I think you're you're right in saying that it's multiply realized and it gets down to personality at some point. Yeah, I mean we, we could we could keep talking about polarization for you know another hour. Um, sure. But I, I do want to get back to something you kind of alluded to earlier, and that was the question of gun violence versus crime, and then law enforcement, you know, public safety, law and order, a lot of these buzzwords, I think, in the next year are going to become more prominent, you know, as we get closer to the election. Um, but I think it is important to address the actual problem that you mentioned, which is like an objective rise in crime. Like homicides, we know, jumped pretty significantly in 2020. You know, as COVID and lockdowns went into place, you had a, a, almost a 30% jump in major urban areas when it came to homicide rates. And then, you know, that seems to have come down slightly since 2020, but then you have things like surges in robberies, carjackings. I mean, I worked in DC this past summer, you know, you're in the DC area, you know, the carjackings have become a major problem in a way that they don't seem to have been since, you know, multiple decades ago. So kind of taking a broad mm -hmm. look at this rise in crime, from your perspective, like in the past few years, like how did the problem get so much worse? 
well. I think the big difficulty with these kinds of things is that once the trend starts going in a certain direction, it has a lot of momentum that becomes difficult to kind of stop, right? So, I mean, if you think about something like shoplifting, if nobody is shoplifting, everybody probably thinks like, it'd be really risky to go do some shoplifting. Like, I'm not sure exactly what will happen to me if I get caught, but like, it's probably not good. And my odds of getting caught are probably pretty high. And that's in fact, probably actually true, right? Like, what if you go to a town where nobody has shoplifted from the drugstore all year, and you become the first guy to like walk out of there with a bag of loot, people are going to freak out. They're going to lose their shit. They're going to find you and they're going to arrest you, right? If it becomes this kind of situation where it's happening regularly, then A, people hear from their friends, like you can get away with this. And then B, the people charged with enforcement and things like that get overwhelmed and demoralized. And they've got a million other things to do because other crimes are also happening. Uh, I, I was talking to a, an MPDC officer um, this week because I, I saw people with folding tables out on the street and they were selling, like, obviously shoplifted loot. Um, and I was like, what, like, what's up? Can you, can you stop those guys? And he said to me, he's like, look, the public defenders know at this point that we can't actually prove that all that stuff was stolen, right? Like, how am I going to document that? And the DAs know that the public defenders know that we can't prove that. So they're not even going to file the paper on the case if I bring those guys in. So if I go arrest them for you, I'm going to have to do all this paperwork and the DA is going to tell me I should cut them loose. So I'm not going to bother. That's not a policy change. You know what I mean? Like, I think like a lot of Republicans want to say that like somehow like Joe Biden did something and it's caused all the shoplifting. But that's not a change. It's always been true that if you see a guy with a table full of stuff that seems like it was stolen from Walgreens, your intuition is like, why don't the cops arrest that guy? But really, how would you make that case? How would you prove that beyond a reasonable doubt? The difference is that now the cops know that the DAs know that the public defenders know that nothing's going to happen. So the cop doesn't even want to arrest the guy. So the guy knows the cop isn't even going to want to arrest him. So he can do it totally out in the open. And then everybody knows you can resell it, right? So it's like this informational cascade and we're going to have to work on. So homicide has started to go down again. And I think the reason that the improvement starts with homicide is that whatever you may say, Nobody is so soft on crime that they don't try to arrest and punish murderers. You know, so like that's where you start going down the hill. The question we're going to have with this larger set of things, right, like people smoking on the L, uh, people peeing on the street, people sleeping in parks, people stealing shit from CBS. is like, how do you reestablish the norm that like something will be done if you break these minor rules? But like not that much is going to be done or ever has been done. These are not serious crimes. Um, but when crimes that aren't that serious only happen rarely, you can be like, okay, like, yeah, we'll give you a slap on the wrist. And then people mostly don't do it. When it's happening all the time, you're faced with this more difficult problem, which is like, how much resources exactly should the cops invest in a guy illegally reselling like toothpaste, 
right? Like, because fencing toothpaste is like, it's, it's legitimately not that big of a deal, right? But if stores can't operate because all their toothpaste is being stolen because of all the toothpaste fencing, like that is a big deal and you're going to have to do something about it. Yeah. And, you know, I'm going to get on the public defender viewpoint for a second and, and confirm, I think, what that MPD officer is telling you in that the public defender service is good and that that, that kind of thing. Right. They, they deal with that. Um, I, I think you allude to like the maybe more serious implication of like maybe a culture of impunity developing. And that's when the enforcement of things that get violent isn't as consistent. I think you've focused in the D.C. area and then I know also some other municipalities on carrying a pistol without a license, which is called different things in different districts. But in D.C., those cases are continuously getting charged but not papered or there's being arrests not made and there's cases not being brought. I can say when I was working over the summer, this was something that PDS sees a lot of cases come in for. Um, and, yes. you know, I think we would agree and a lot of Democrats would agree that it's a good goal to try to have fewer guns on the street. From a criminal justice reform perspective, you hope that that doesn't have to result in a lot more people going to jail. I know it's not this simple, but is there not some kind of argument that if the guns are getting off the street, if arrests are being made and illegal guns are being seized, but prosecutors aren't picking it up, people aren't going to jail, that there's still some kind of like needle in the haystack solution there. I know that impunity for carrying around an illegal gun doesn't... Well, so I... I, I actually think from a pure criminal justice reform perspective, almost, that that's actually part of the problem, that giving the police credit for seizing the weapons in an odd way rewards them for making bad arrests, right? And so like one of the things in DC, and I think other progressive jurisdictions need to do, is like bring some of the different stakeholders together and try to understand what it is we are doing, right? Because one perspective is that some of these people who are carrying pistols just like should be allowed to do that, right? Like in much of the country, it's not that challenging to get legal permission to carry a pistol, right? And like, that is a good way to have people not doing time in prison for carrying pistols. Um, you know, so we should consider like, how strict do we want our gun laws to be? That being said, every place has some regulations on guns, right? Um, you know, we don't let people who have just done years in prison for shooting somebody uh, go get another gun and carry it around town. And so we have to think, like, how do we want to enforce that? I think that making lots of low-quality arrests, seizing the gun, and then cutting the person loose because the cops don't really have the evidence or because it was an illegal seizure, that seems actually, like, really bad to me, right? Like you are swamping the criminal justice system with this kind of questionable stuff. And you're creating a situation where the prosecutors kind of look like the bad guys to everybody because they're cutting people loose who the cops say they've arrested. Um, the public defenders are saying like, what the hell? Like, what are these charges that you're bringing? Like, this is nonsense. But then the police are like, we've seized 20,000 guns. Like, we're the heroes here. But like, you shouldn't be doing illegal searches, right? Doing an illegal search, finding an illegal gun, arresting the guy, seizing the gun, and then having the prosecutor dismiss the charges, like that's actually bad, 
right? We should be dedicating our police resources to making good arrests, I think, that have deterrent influence and, you know, respect people's constitutional rights, et cetera, et cetera. So, uh, you know, I think the low percentages is like a problem on both sides. But I think the the reform community, though, needs to consider the incarceration rate in D.C. has gone up over the past three years. And the reason for that is that there are so many more murderers, right? Like people do a lot of prison time for murder. Um, And so to the extent that we don't want tons and tons of people in prison forever, I think, you know, it, it makes sense to ask hard questions about sentence lengths. But like the level of underlying serious violent crime is an important determinant of incarceration. And so trying to avoid any kind of punishment or accountability for low-level violators can backfire if it leads to a lot of sort of mayhem out there. Um, DC is a small place. Like it's physically very, very small. Um, If it was a state, it would be a tiny ass state. Um, And it has a flatter government structure than any place else in the country. It's a unicameral legislature. Um, You know, it's a combined city, state, county entity. And there's really no excuse, I think, for the lack of communication between the council, the mayor, the police chief, the U.S. attorney, the chief judge. I'm just like, like, what's our objective here? Um, Because the police department has been pursuing an objective of maximizing weapon seizures that's just at odds with the prosecutor's objective of securing good criminal cases. and. The mismatch between those things is not securing the mayor's objective of reducing crime. And the upshot is that even though the council has passed all these reform bills, uh, we have more people in prison rather than fewer. So, like, that's really bad. Like, we, we could do better than that by trying to, like, literally, like, I want them to all, you know, have lunch and, like, try to understand what they want to do here. Yeah, no, get together and then maybe try to have a a really hard discussion for a very liberal place about maybe the most strict gun laws in the nation in a place where there's extremely high numbers of illegal handguns is a recipe for disaster. That maybe the strictness is not really aligning with like the actual execution of law enforcement. That that sounds to me like... Right. I mean, I mean, I remember, you know, I, I was a kid. I grew up in New York, and, and Rudy Giuliani was mayor, and you know, he, Rudy he was Giuliani was mayor of New York. Like, you you would never know that. Yeah, <laughs> but you know, so it was New York City, so he had to like um, break with the Republican Party on some topics, right? And one of his big things that he was quote unquote progressive on was guns, because he was also very right wing on crime and policing, right? And that, I mean, you could absolutely like disagree with the approach he took, but it was completely coherent. Like his view was that guns are really, really bad. And so his strategy was going to be to have the police very liberally stopping people and like arresting them for having guns on them, right? It's tough, I think, to be super left on guns, but then also want to be super left on policing and incarceration. Um, which people see in the case of like drugs, right? Like it's not good when people shoot heroin. Um, at the same time, if your solution to the heroin problem 
is really, really, really strict laws against heroin, then like you have to arrest a lot of people on drug possession charges, right? If you don't want to see that happening, you need to take a softer line. And like, it is true. Like some people are going to overdose or get into problems with addiction and so on and so forth. And you're doing a cost benefit. And like, it's just like probably not a good idea to have a super strict war on drugs. Um, I also don't think you want like, you know, like crack being sold openly in every 7-Eleven in the country, but it's, it's, it's a balance and guns is just not that different from drugs in that regard. Yeah. The, I mean, the, the drug version of this debate is particularly salient right now where I'm from in, in Canada, the, the gun part, maybe a little less so. Um, but we want to hit one more, yeah. one more substantive issue with you and then let you go on your way. Um, we want to talk a little bit about higher ed really quickly. So there was a paper this summer you didn't think a lot of the paper, the opportunity, or, you know, you thought the paper might've been a little bit overblown. And this was the paper on college admissions um, by Opportunity Insights, oh, yeah. Raj Chetty and, and co. Um, for those who haven't read it, we, we did a podcast about it last, or a couple weeks ago. Um, but it basically showed that class, socioeconomic class is a major determinant of admission to highly selective U.S. colleges, like the one we're at right now. Um, and that these schools create privilege by funneling their graduates into the top positions in society. And so maybe diversifying admissions could help diversify America. Um, you said, you know, hold on a moment. This seems a little bit overblown, a little bit overhyped. You wrote a, a blog post entitled, uh, why, why Harvard will never be an engine of social mobility. Well, what's your argument here? Yeah. Do you still believe that? And, and if you believe that's true, because you're also a big higher education reform guy, where should we be diverting our attention instead of, you know, the Harvards, the Yales, the, the Ivy pluses? Yeah. So, I mean, I want to be clear. I mean, I, I, it's not that I didn't think well of the paper. I mean, as a piece of scholarship, I think it shed a lot of light on higher admissions to elite institutions of higher education. That's a subject a lot of people are interested in. Um, I, in addition to being a political pundit, like I'm also just like a, a dad and I went to Harvard and my wife went to MIT and like all graduates at fancy colleges were very interested in our kids' education and, you know, learning about the ways in which private schools, which we do not send our son to and, and you know, weird fancy sports and stuff like that influence the admission process, fascinating research. The paper has the claim that this is like a promising angle of social reform. And that's what I doubt. Um, the magnitudes that they are identifying in this paper are not that big. Um, to be clear, they're not that big in a, in a specific way, right? If you look at the student body at Harvard, um, you, you look at, I guess, the parents of the students, they are way richer than the American average, right? It's like off the charts. This paper shows that some of that is due to a biased admission system, but it also confirms that it mostly isn't due to a biased admission system. Um, it's just mostly the case that the kids who have really high SAT scores and really good grades in high school are from rich families. Like that is the the majority of the skew here. And then if you look at like the graduates of the Ivy Plus colleges do very well in life. And the paper confirms what I think most people uh, who've looked at this over the years have perfected, which is that's mostly just because those people are smarter, right? Like if you took 
the kids with the high SAT scores and the good high school grades, and you sent them to their in-state flagship institution, they also do really well in life. But the actual value added provided by Harvard and Yale is quite modest. So the upshot of that, it seems to me, is that like if you want an egalitarian society, you are not going to achieve it by fiddling with um, admissions policies and in institutions of higher education. And in particular, the big injustice is that there is so much more money is given to the t- top quote unquote institutions. I, I quoted my, um, at the time, five-year-old, uh, and he was saying to me, uh, the weakest Plus students the must go to the best colleges because they need the most help. And you know, yeah. there's a reason we don't do it that way, but that sort of makes sense, right? And like in the K-12 system, it is true, right? Like, you know, um, in third grade, they are surging extra help and tutoring to the kids who haven't mastered their phonics yet. Because the thinking is, is it's really important to clear a certain literacy bar by third grade so that they can start doing content instruction in fourth, fifth, et cetera grade. And the kids who are at the top of the reading hierarchy are being a little bit like deprioritized this year and just kind of being told like, yeah, like go, you know, go read in the corner or whatever. And it can be like a little bit of a bummer um, as the parent of a smart kid, but I think it makes perfect sense as a social priority to be dedicating resources to the people who need the most. In the higher education context, you know, I mean, it's a little bit different, right? These institutions have research missions. There's a benefit to trying to like agglomerate the smartest people, you know, like the Manhattan, I mean, as you guys see Oppenheimer, right? It's like the idea is you get all the smartest people and you give them an incredible budget and they make an atom bomb, right? And it's not a like a social justice mission at all. But higher education is in part a social justice mission, right? And it's like, if Harvard and MIT had less resources and UMass Boston had more that were going to people who are trying to get the skills that they need to survive in a modern post-industrial economy, but are not the most talented students in the state of Massachusetts, um, like they could really uh, use it. Right. So so don't look to the Ivy Plus. And then I guess your alternative is focused more on Focus more on K twelve or, or focus more on on public universities. Is that is is my read correct there? I mean, I I'm not as like deeply knowledgeable on the like K twelve versus higher ed uh, kind of trade offs. My like bias is that early education is more valuable um, than lower stuff. But then somebody who I trust a lot on these topics told me that's not true, and then I didn't actually read the thing she sent me. Um, so you know, it's like you, you sort of. You, the narrower you slice the cost-benefit question, like I think the harder it is to get the answer. But I do think we know pretty firmly that like 20-year-olds with, you know, 1550 SAT scores are not like the people most in need of help. Um, even if they, due to some discriminatory admissions policy, like didn't get to go to Duke. And so they're at UNC, like that's that's fine really, you know, in the scheme of things, versus like, somebody whose parents came from Central America, and they're not even literate in Spanish, and the kid is like trying to learn to read, like, resources there can really make 
the difference because a big part of what that kid is lacking is the like in-home resources that the children of affluent professionals just take for granted, right? But like we can we can put books and resources and stuff in, in that kid's community. Yeah, and I, I guess you know maybe regrettably it seems like the incentive structure of major news publications is probably to focus on the sensationalistic elements of admissions to elite universities, maybe more so than um, some of these more fundamental changes that that you're talking about and things that should be prioritized. But anyway, I think I think we're we're ready to to wrap this up. I just want to end with one quick question, um, looping back to what Jack was talking about at the very beginning of the episode when he was asking about. 21-year-old Matt Iglesias. Um, you know, since then you've spent a career in journalism. You've kind of carefully documented the absurdities of this country's political system. You've watched countless political promises undoubtedly go unfulfilled. You've seen probably, you know, education reform be misprioritized. You spent a lot of world in the a lot of time in the angry world of of Twitter or or X. Um, and yet at least you strike me as like a pretty happy, optimistic kind of lighthearted guy when it comes to politics. Maybe my read is wrong. Maybe you're you're really angry and bitter, but you don't strike me that way. Good at hiding it. Yeah. Um how do you how do you stay happy? How do you stay somewhat optimistic in this in this path you've chosen and this career? Well, yeah, you know, I mean something I, I, I want to say about that is I, I used to be a much more unhappy person. And um I used to let that influence like what I would say about politics and public policy. And, you know, the truth is, if I look over the course of my life at things that have changed in American politics, a lot of them have been good, and some of them have been bad. Um, but almost none of the change for the better has done a lot for like me personally, uh, which is fine. Like, I don't think I like need to be the subject of intense uh, kind of concern in, in the policy world. Um, I am really glad that Medicaid has been expanded, but I, I don't get that. Um, I'm glad that gay and lesbian couples have the right to get married, but that I, I don't, that, that's not me. Um, the air is a little bit cleaner. Um, that's good. Um, rivers are a little bit cleaner, uh, but I'm not going to swim in the Potomac River. I think that's gross, uh, even though it's cleaner than it used to be. Um, but I'm a lot happier than I used to be because I, um, uh, I went to therapy and I uh, lost weight and I started working out more regularly and I got married and I had a child. Um, I make more money than I used to, but I'm just doing the same job. And I think that it's unhealthy of people to try to seek like personal, like psychological um, answers in the political process or to confuse their personal angers and frustrations in the world with like political righteousness um, and things like that. Like if you're unhappy or, or frustrated or angry or whatever else it is, you probably have valid reasons for that. But the redress for your personal problems is probably going to be personal. Um, and policy and politics is incredibly important, but it's like, it's, too important to let it get so bound up with your own ego and other kinds of stuff like that. Um, you know, we all in life have our frustrations, uh, but one of the things, you know, I've learned and that I think if you ask anybody is that, you know, you will be happier as a person if you learn to cultivate a sense of gratitude 
um, and a sense of agency, right? Like a, a, a locus of control. Those are just a little bit at odds, I think, with the imperatives of politics. Politics is about improving the systemic conditions that people live in and being happy is about taking responsibility for your own life and doing what you can to improve it. Um, and, you know, one way to resolve those things is to just like become a right winger who doesn't care about the structural conditions that people face. But I, I don't think you should do that. I think you should just try to cultivate a little bit of separation between the part of your mind that is like, look, human beings are subject to forces that are outside of our control, but we can collectively try to shape society to be fairer and better. But also, like, you have to deal with your life as it is, um, as best that you can, like, as a person, right? Like, it's, it's really hard to, like, win elections and make policy change. And even change for the better is not going to usher in a utopia. And um, this is, you know, my site is named Slowboring, slowboring.com. Everybody should check it out. You can get on the free email list, then I will try to throw you in. Uh, but, you know, there's a quote from Max Weber, and he says, politics is a, a strong and steady, uh, boring, of, slow and steady, boring of hard boards, right? Like, it's hard. It's hard to make political change over time um, and being firm but patient is important in that regard yeah so if if you're listening to this in the library while you're rage scrolling on x turn it off sometimes go outside touch grass i, <laughs> I think there's maybe some sure. people listening uh we, we could take that into account too matt iglesias thanks so or much read a book you or guys still have library. Read a book. Yeah, read a book for joy. Yeah. Or read a book. <laughs> Matt, thanks so much for joining us today. This was awesome. Um, if you're listening, definitely check out Slow Boring. Join me and Jack as as subscribers and, and daily readers. Join the you won't regret it. Thanks, thanks for joining us. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you.